As we study Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we, we saw our past in verses 1, 2, and 3. That was our past condition, spiritually dead, following the course of this world, enslaved to Satan. Then we looked at our present condition in verses 4 through 7, in which we see the, the biggest, the best word in the Bible. It's, but God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. The Bible says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved through faith. Then we move on through verses 8 through 10, in which we saw our future, and that is we have been saved by grace, not as a result of our own works. It's a gift of God, so that no one may boast. And he goes on to say, For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. And it says, God prepared it beforehand. God foreordained it. Even as He foreordained our salvation, He foreordained our works as well. Last week, we looked at verses 11 through 13, in which we saw how the Gentiles who were before were brought near, who are far away have been brought near. And we've been reminded to remember that was our past condition. And Paul, as he commands us to remember our past, he tells us that the Gentiles were the uncircumcised. In fact, they were called the uncircumcised by the Jew. That the Gentiles were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of the promises, which we know is a promise of the Messiah, and strangers to the covenant of promise. But now they have been brought near. In verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18. And let me read verses 14 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, 14 through 18. And I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. And it reads, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, And he came, and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Two headings emerge from this passage. First, He reconciled us to one another, verses 14 through 15. Second, He reconciled us to God, verses 16 through 18. I repeat, two headings. First, He reconciled us to one another, verses 14 through 15. Second, He reconciled us to God, verses 16 through 18. Let's look at the first heading. He reconciled us to one another. Paul begins... The phrase, for he himself is our peace, in verse 14. The pronoun he is emphatic in the Greek. It refers to Christ. Christ is the source of our peace. He is the cause of our peace. He himself is our peace. Now we see this repeated, the phrase, He is our peace, repeated about five times in different passages. Now I'll read two of them. One is found in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. We also read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, May the God of peace sanctify you entirely. He is the God of peace. We are saved. We are Christians. Simply because God is a God of peace. He's not only the giver of peace, He's the one who maintains peace as well. The word peace here 
is true peace. Not just the cessation of enmity with one another, but it's cessation of enmity with God. So it's not just cessation of enmity with one another, but it's also the cessation of enmity with God. There is no peace with God unless we are in Christ Jesus. There can be no true peace unless we are in peace with Christ. Reminded of the time when World War I came to an end back in the year 1918. It was November 11th, 1918. At 11 o'clock when the truce was finally called. That the end of enmity between the two forces. Little did they know that was not the end. Because it, it continued into the second world war. But here when we talk about peace. We are talking about true peace. True peace is not just a concept. It's not just an idea. But it's a person. This is why we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he says, He is the prince of peace. He is the one who brings peace. He is the one who announces peace. Now as we read verses 11 through 13, we know why he's called peace. Because if you go back into the Bible and look at verses 11 through 13 in chapter 2, we read that the Gentiles in the flesh... We were called the uncircumcised or uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And he goes on to say, we were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of the promise. We were having no hope and without God in the world. This is who we were. And in this condition, we were not only separated from the Jew, the Jew and the Gentile, there was hostility. And this separation truly was a result of sin. And we can look at the world around us and we see separation amongst people, relatives, amongst couples. Couples who have lived together for 20 plus years, finally decide to split. Children moving away from families. Relatives not talking to one another. Events such as Christmas or Thanksgiving becomes a sore uh, time for families as they come together. They don't look forward to that because they don't look forward to sitting down with relatives, with loved ones. All this separation is a result of sin. Sin does not merely separate men from each other, but it also puts men at enmity with God. And we saw that in Ephesians chapter 3, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 3 and 4. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3, 1, 2, and 3. That we were dead in our trespasses. We walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that said, now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So, we need true peace. So with that in mind, as we continue reading verses 14 through 15, in chapter 2, Paul discusses how the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile was reconciled. What did God do to bring the Jew and the Gentile together? He made peace. How did He do that? We'll see as we continue reading in the text that it's through the cross. It's through the cross that we have peace. But let me show you a couple of things that happened as a result of bringing peace through the cross. We begin with verse 14. In verse 14, we see that He Himself is our peace who made us both one. That means no longer are we two individuals, no longer are we two people. He has made us both one. Then he goes on to say, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then he says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And then he goes on to say, thus creating in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He made us both one. Now as we try to understand the context here, 
We need to understand that there was hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, why was there hostility between the Jew and the Gentile? We know from the Old Testament that the Jews were a chosen race. In other words, God chose the Jew over the Gentile. Now you may sit there and wonder why. Why God did you choose the Jew? Why did you not choose the Gentile instead? Well, we don't know. God is a sovereign God and God can do as He pleases. But we know here that He did choose the Jews. Now as we look at the fact that He chose the Jews, you may ask, why did He have to choose a group of people in the first place? To understand this, we have to go back to the Garden of Eden. And as we go back to the Garden of Eden, we see that Adam and Eve sinned. And as Adam and Eve sinned, because of one man's sin, sin passed on to the rest of the world. The rest of mankind. And sin continued to inundate the rest of the world. And the horrible sinfulness of sin reached a climax. God now chooses a people to work around this and, he, and draw his people back to himself. In order to think about this, think about a river flowing. And all of a sudden, a tree falls on the river, blocking the flow of water, and no longer is water able to flow through. The same thing that happened. Man sinned, and no longer was God's blessing able to go through to the rest of the world to his chosen people. And so now, God chooses a channel for his blessings to flow through. The channel that he chooses is, he begins with Abraham. Now you all heard about Abraham, at least you have sung the song, Father Abraham. But you see the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And as you see the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, God called Abraham from the city of Mesopotamia down to the east. As you look, it was called the middle of the earth. That was, that's why it's called Mesopotamia. Now, as you're hearing all the story, again, you're probably thinking, why, why God? Why did you go to Mesopotamia? And why did you pick Abraham? Well, it's not because of anything special in Abraham. There was nothing in Abraham to choose him. God picked Abraham to be a channel to bless his people of his own will. And as he picked Abraham, he sealed the covenant with Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And if you want to know more about the story, I would encourage you, please turn with me back into the Old Testament, back in the book of Genesis. And let me walk you through the story quickly. So as you turn your pages to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, we read that God sealed a promise with Abraham with a sacrifice. Now it's interesting the way this promise was sealed. He got, he told Abraham to bring the animals. In fact, the animals that Abraham was to bring was a heifer. He was to bring a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And now God told Abraham to gather all these animals. And what he did was God took these animals and divided them right in the center and cut them in half and laid one half on each side. And then when the sun was going down, interesting, God put Abraham to sleep. It was like a blackout for Abraham. And as God put Abraham to sleep, God made a covenant. He confirmed the covenant that he made with Abraham in verses 17 through 18. And so if you're in chapter 15, I'm reading verses 17 and 18. It says, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a, smock, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now keep in mind that when two people makes a co make a covenant with each other, they seal it with blood. They take an animal, they cut it in half and lay it on each side and they walk between the blood pieces, signifying that they made a covenant in blood to keep their promise. And to watch all this, there would be witnesses. But in this case, in Genesis chapter 15, we find that God blocked Abraham out. In fact, Abraham went to sleep. God put him to sleep. And he was making his, his covenant here. He was, he was confirming his covenant through the ceremony. And he was even, there was no party involved because Abraham was sleeping. It was an unconditional covenant. 
God is simply saying, Abraham, you go to sleep while I make the covenant with myself. God promises himself on the basis of his own purposes that this is what he's going to do. And Abraham, you have nothing to do with this. You're just the vehicle for my blessings to go through. You see, God sealed a covenant in a human way with himself. This was the Abrahamic covenant made between God and Abraham. But technically it was between God and God himself. Had nothing to do with Abraham because it was God's own choice. The whole design of God in calling Abraham had nothing to do with Abraham. God didn't owe Abraham anything. He chose to begin with Abraham and he made that vow with himself. So if Abraham was not involved in the whole process, it was nothing based on what Abraham did and God did it based on his own choice. In continuation, he continues to work through the Jewish nation. Now, why did he choose the Jewish nation? We read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 about the nation Israel. It says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you or chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. So even though... There was nothing in the Jew that caused them to enjoy God's special grace upon them. They became prideful of their superior status. They could never say that they were chosen because of something within them. There was nothing about it according to Deuteronomy chapter 7. God set His love on them and chose them. It was of His own free will. But as God chose the nation of Israel, as God chose the Jews, you find that there were privileges that the nation of Israel received as a result of it. They had the sign of the covenant. They were circumcised as a result of the sign of the covenant. They had access to the temple. They were partakers of the covenants of the promise of the Messiah. God had given the Jews special laws, such as ceremonial laws, Burned offerings, meal offerings, sin offerings, grain offerings. But purpose of all these things was to show them that they were a special people from all of the world. And as they enjoyed these special privileges, there was a reason why God did this. You need to understand that the law and its stipulations were given to the Jew to protect the Jew from the practices of the world. They were to be a separate nation. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 21 reads, The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. They were formed to declare God's praises. They were chosen to proclaim the true God to the world around them. They were chosen to reveal the Messiah to the world around them. We also see that they were given laws and they were made a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to represent God as priests to the rest of the world. They were given the scriptures. And they were to preserve the scriptures and transmit the scriptures. They were to show faithfulness of God. Psalm 144 verse 15 we read, Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord... They were to show that anyone whose God is the God of Abraham, the, the Lord, Yahweh, is blessed. Through the offerings, they were to show God's grace in dealing with sin. The sin offering, the burned offering, the grain offering, the meal offering were all opportunities to show God's grace in dealing with sin. So when you look at all these things, the Jews were chosen so that when the world looks at them, they would understand one main theme, and that is the holiness of God. It was an opportunity for the Jews to witness to the Gentile world of God's salvation and deliverance. But rather than choosing to be God's chosen vessel to witness to the pagan nations around them, the Jews took this privilege to look down on the Gentiles. The Jews were thinking that they were superior to everyone else. 
And this caused hostility to arise between the Jew and the Gentile. But you see, when you read Ephesians chapter 2, we see that Jesus Christ came to earth, died on the cross, and He becomes peace for those who trust in Him. It says He removed the dividing wall of hostility in verse 14. What is the dividing wall of hostility? If you look at the Jewish temple, the Jews were allowed to enter into the, the outer courtyard and they would offer their sacrifices. The priest would then take the sacrifice from the holy, into the holy place, into the holy of the holies. But the Gentiles were nowhere allowed near the temple. In fact, there was this area which was separated from the courtyard of the women that was on the outskirts. There was this region called the courtyard of Gentiles. And in the courtyard of Gentiles was this huge barrier which stood up and there was a sign on that barrier, a four and a half feet high marble screen in which it was written that no Gentile could go past this area into the sanctuary. And if they did, that would be a death penalty for them. Even the Romans were not exempt from the death penalty. If they stepped out of it, they could be killed. Now, why did God even put this court of Gentiles on the outskirts? Why weren't they allowed to go in? Well, it was an evangelistic opportunity for the Jew in the first place. The court of Gentiles was an opportunity for the Jewish evangelism of Gentiles, but then it becomes a dividing ball between the Jew and the Gentile. And if you remember the, the, the feast uh, of the Passover, and they, they would actually sell a lot of things outside on the outskirts of the temple. This is exactly where they sold all those things. And that's why Jesus said, you made my house a den of thieves. So the Jews actually took that and made it a dividing wall. And no longer was there any connection between the Gentile and the Jew. Now this is what Christ did on the cross. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. The barrier of ceremonial laws, the fees, the sacrifices, the offerings, the law of uncleanness, I mean the law of cleanliness, purification, they were all abolished. And all ceremonial laws which distinguished and separated the Jews from the Gentiles were obliterated. Before Christ, they could not worship together. Before Christ, they could not eat together. But now in Christ, all the ceremonial distinctions are now removed. So come back to verse 15 in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, how by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, the church. So he made the two, the Jew and the Gentile, into one new person. Paul continues, he created the one new person and we know this one new person, the one new body is nothing but the church. The word create here, if you look up in, in, look in verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man. The word create means to create something that is unique in quality, unlike something that never existed before. God made man and woman, but they fell in the Garden of Eden. The image of God was marred. Now Christ takes what was lost through sin in the original creation and makes them into one new man, the church, which is this new creation. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. It says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Three groups. You have the Jews, the unbelieving Jews. The Greeks, the unbelieving Gentiles. And then those Jews and Gentiles that have been brought together made one new man, one new group called the Church of God. There's a church is multicultural, multi-race, multinationality, multi-people groups. The church is no longer Jewish or Gentile, but it is a new man. This is what we read in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. For there is no distinction between a Jew and a Greek 
For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So as we come to this point, I just want to gather our thoughts together. Why was Jew chosen from all the people of the world? Because God chose the Jews to be a vehicle of blessing to the rest of the world. It was through the Jew that the world would understand that there would be a Savior that would come into the world who would die for the sins of people. But then the Jew took that privilege as a matter of pride. And there was a separation between the Jew and the Gentile. Now in the fullness of time, God sends His only Son. And as Jesus Christ comes into the world... And he grows up in this world 33 years, lives a life of obedience, and then he goes to the cross and he dies on the cross. Everything that was promised to the Jew, everything that was said in the commandments, everything that was said in the ordinances, everything that the sacrifices stood for, the burnt offerings, the meal offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, everything that it stood for was now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now when it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, He now brings the Jew and the Gentile together as one new man. And this new body is called the church. This is why it's nonsensical to have a Messianic Jewish temple as much we would have to announce here that this is family heritage Gentile church. Do we say that? We don't. Because in Christ, when a Jew becomes a Christian, he's a new man. When a Gentile becomes a Christian, he's a new man. The dividing wall is gone, and there is newness to the body of Christ, and we call this the church. A new race, a new group, a new body, a new community, coming together in Christ. Now the question to us is, we are now members of the new body. If you're seated here this morning, you are members of the new body. And you are part of the church. Are we hostile to one another as members of the body of Christ? Yes. In fact, before we were saved, we were really hostile. We were worshippers of self. We were prideful. We bleed arrogance. Or we bled arrogance. We gloried in our achievements. We loved to brag. As an unsaved person, we were braggers. We were headstrong. We were individualistic. As unsaved people, we were self-opinionated. We were not gracious. We were worshippers of self. We were glory-driven. We were egotistical, meaning we were full of oneself. We were self-obsessed, self-absorbed, self-centered. We thought we were superior to others. In our unsaved condition, this is who we were. But then Christ found us, and we were made born again. We were given faith, and we trusted in Christ. And Christ becomes our peace. And now we are empowered by the power that raised Christ from the dead to equip us, to empower us, to live out the resurrected life. We can now practice the one another in the Bible. We are now able to encourage one another. We are able to love one another. We are able to exhort one another. We are able to pray for one another. We are able to come alongside one another. And, and, and all of this is only possible because Christ has become our peace. We can now love our spouses. We can now fulfill the mandate that God has given for us to live our life on this earth. But even though we are regenerated, even though we are born again, we still have the sinful flesh in us. Positionally, we are Christians. We are, we are pure. Positionally, we have God's righteousness in us, Christ's righteousness in us. But practically, we are not that way. The root problem in our relationship is sin. Because we still have the remnant of sin in us. 
So as a result, as believers, if one person is recognized instead of us, we get upset. As believers, when one gets accolades instead of us, we are not happy campers. The only way we can get rid of this true hostility between people, between believers, is when the self dies at the foot of the cross. We can only be reconciled with each other through cross, and we need to understand that. Reconciliation is only possible when He becomes our peace. When Christ is our peace, and when Christ deals with our sin problem. He's the source of our peace. And as Christians, we're still going to struggle with this situation, with conflict and hostility. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 4. And in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we see about, we read about two women, Yodia and Syntyche. And he was, Paul was imploring Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Two godly women in the church, but they struggled with conflict and hostility. We read about Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. We know that there was a dissension over the issue of John Mark. That John Mark dissented, and so Paul couldn't take John Mark on the missionary journey. And so as a result, there was an argument between John, between Paul and Barnabas. What did Barnabas do? Barnabas decides to take John Mark on his missionary journey. Now, as you think about it, you probably do not know the context here, but John Mark was related to Barnabas. Now, you see why Barnabas took John Mark? He was favoring his own relative. And when it came to his relative, he was willing to overlook the doctrinal issues and he favored John Mark, gave him special preference because he belonged to his family. We see this kind of even in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul had to write to the Corinthians because they were divided over the issue of the eloquence of the preacher. Who is the most eloquent preacher? Was it Paul? Was it Apollos? Was it Cephas? Who is the best preacher? And as a result of it, they were not behaving as Christians. Folks, unless and until we don't seek to reconcile our relationship through Christ, we will have conflicts. But when you are in Christ, He becomes the Lord of your life. And through the sanctifying work of the Word of God and the enablement of the Holy Spirit, we are able to overcome our fleshly desires. This is what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You can only walk in the Spirit if you are in Christ. So are you in conflict with one another as believers? You know what you're doing when you're in conflict with one another as believers? If you're in Christ, you're actually fighting Christ. How can you fight with Christ? How can you be in conflict with one another when you are in vital union with Christ and with one another? It's like this. Will you slap your own face? You will not. Will your leg kick yourself in the back? Will, will you strike yourself with a stick? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Your body belongs to you. The parts of your body belongs to you. Your natural affinity is to take care of the parts of your body. And so when we look at fellow believers around you, when you look at the person sitting right next to you, the result of the peace of Christ should be true unity and true love. In fact, the peace of Christ will become your umpire as the umpire in a game. And we'll be able to see one another and our conflicts through the eyes of Christ and with the peace that He brings in. Christ reconciled us to one another. That's my first heading. Let's go on to the next heading that's found in verses 16 through 18. 
And it says, we are reconciled to God. Let me read 16 through 18. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here we see the, the reason why God abolished and rendered the law inoperative and all of the other things. It was one, to create a new person, but here we see to reconcile us to God. And how did he do it? Through the cross. In, in verses 14 through 15, it was a union of the believing Jews and the Gentiles into one new humanity called the church. But here in verses 16 onwards, we see the reconciliation of the body of Jews and Gentiles to God. The word reconcile that we see in verse 16 and might reconcile is an intensified form of the word reconciliation. It means complete, full restoration. Means there's disturbed peace, but now Christ brings complete and full restoration. Restoration to what? It's restoration to God. Because we see here that without Christ, we are hostile to God. We are children deserving wrath without God. And, and what happens here is, as children deserving wrath, God took us and reconciled us. We see in Colossians chapter 1 verse 22, He has now reconciled us in His fleshly body through death. Now, why was there hostility in the first place between the Jew and the Gentile? Because of sin. And, and, and in the first place, because of sin, but sin separates us from God, and so we are all separated from God, and that's where all hostilities begin. We quarrel, we separate, because we are in a wrong relationship with God. And all began in the Garden of Eden. And the only way we can have true reconciliation between people is if we are reconciled to God. Man has to be right with God before he can be right with his fellow beings. So when couples go on to so-called secular counselors to set their marriage right, what the secular counselors are just trying to do is bring about a false restoration because there's no true peace. True peace can only come when the couples are in right relationship to God. And when they are in right relationship to God, they will be growing in a right relationship to each other. So there can be no reconciliation between people if there is no reconciliation to God. This is what we read in the great commandment that was given by Jesus. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And he said, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He did not say you shall love your neighbor as yourself and then go on to say you shall love the Lord your God because the pattern is clear. Unless and until there is no right vertical relationship, there can be no horizontal relationship existing on planet earth. So if you want to be right with each other, you need to be right with God. And this is our second heading here. We are being reconciled to God in one body through the cross. Now keep in mind that it happened through the cross. The cross was the means to bring salvation to mankind. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespass against them. And the Bible goes on to read in 2 Corinthians 5.19, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Let's go back to verse 16. And he says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Some version says, thereby putting to death the hostility. Meaning, through the crucifixion, God killed the enmity. He put an end to the hostility between God and us that separated us 
from each other and from God. And the Lord Jesus took upon Himself the judgment that the broken law required. And He paid to the full extent for the people of God. And this is why the people of God are able to go free because their penalty has been paid for. Because Christ took the penalty for mankind on the cross. Verse 17 goes on to read, And He came and He preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. Now it's interesting if you look at the order of words here. In 16 it says, He came, reconciled us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who are far away. Shouldn't the preaching of the peace come before the cross? But we see here that he first went to the cross, he killed the hostility, and then he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. What is the meaning of preaching to those who are far off and preaching to those who are near? It means Christ preached salvation. How did he preach it? Well, he preached it to the apostles and through his servants. The gospel of peace was preached. Now keep in mind, it says in verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. That means he preached peace both to the Jew and to the Gentile. Yes, the Jew were the chosen people of God. The Gentiles were far off. They were considered far. Both needed the gospel. The Jew couldn't be saved by their righteousness. The reason God gave all the ordinances and the commandments to the Jew was for them to show that they could exhaust themselves in doing all these commandments. They could never please a holy God. The only way they could please a holy God is by relying on a righteousness that comes from Christ Jesus who would die for them on the cross. And they were to witness this to the Gentile world as well. But this all got mixed up. And so now here we find the preaching of the gospel. It was done through the apostles and to the people and through all of us to the world around us. It is the preaching of the gospel that saves lives. It's nothing but the preaching of the gospel. Someone once said, well, use words if necessary. No, words are the only means to bring salvation into the lives of people. The only way anyone can be saved is through the preaching of God's Word. We see this very clearly in the Scriptures because we find in Romans chapter 10 verse 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Faith comes by the message and the message of Jesus Christ. There has to be the preaching of the gospel. Preaching is a means to bring conversion to the lives of people. Now you may say, well, I don't preach. I just live a good life. Well, there are lots of people who live good lives. What is it that makes a distinction between you and the other people? When you look at the Jew and the Gentile, there were Jews who lived a good life. They were lived righteously. They were trying to keep the laws. There were probably Gentiles who lived a good life. Living a good life saves no one. The only thing that saves anyone is the recognition of the fact that Christ is the one who lived among us, lived a perfect life, lived a good life, a completely perfect life. And when we look at the life of Christ, we all fall short of the standard of God. And so now Christ goes to the cross, takes our sin upon Him, and imputes to us His righteousness and we now stand on His righteousness, not based upon our good works. And so good works will not save anyone. Words will only save. And the words that will save is not just God loves you, but the words of the gospel that is we are sinners destined to death. And the only way we can be saved is through Christ. Christ coming to the world to die for our sins. And He lived a perfect life. And He went to the cross he took our sins upon Him. The Bible says He became sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange and this is the gospel that can save people and nothing but the gospel. We are reconciled to God. As we move on in verse 18, it says, For through Him 
we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The, the verb have access is in the present tense. Because of the preaching of peace, we both have access to God in the sphere of the Spirit. Now you see the work of the Trinity here. You see that in verse, seven, verse 18. So yes, Christ came and preached peace. And through Him, that is through Christ, we both have access in one Spirit, that is through the Holy Spirit, to the Father. And so the work of the Trinity is very clearly seen here. The preaching of the peace, we have access to God. And as we have access to God, we have Christ dying on the cross and the Holy Spirit making it possible for us to believe in Christ. This is amazing redemption. Two headings. Are we, we are reconciled to one another and we are reconciled to God. Do you know Christ? If you do not know Christ, you do not know peace. You may know peace as the world calls peace, the same kind of peace that took place that brought World War I to an end. But that peace was temporary. Maybe the peace that you think of is just calm, going to a serene place, sitting and watching a sunrise and enjoying peace because there's nothing else there around you. But once you come back to your normal lives, you have no peace. You have relationships that are hurting. You have to deal with the pain and of suffering in this world. You have to deal with hopelessness. You have to deal with everything that sin brings into this world. And the Bible says that the only thing that sin brings into this world is death. Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God through Christ Jesus is eternal life. So when I ask you this question, do you know Christ? Many of us know Christ as in the Christ born at Christmas. You still have remnants of that in the community around us. You drive around this Christmas season, you can still find a nativity scene somewhere, apart from some of the other strange things that hangs out from trees and other places. At least you see the nativity scene. So there are people around who still profess to know Christ. Yes, Christ came on Christmas Day. He was born among us. When I ask you, do you know Christ? I'm asking you this question rather directly. It says, do you know Christ as your Lord and your Savior? And the only way you can answer that question is if you're able to answer this question that I'm going to ask you again. Do you recognize you're a sinner? Because if you don't recognize you're a sinner, you will be like the Jew who actually had all the privileges, but never really understood anything beyond that. They could be like people who come to church week after week, Sunday after Sunday, sit in on the pews and listen to the preaching of God's word and walk away. Thinking that they know, that they know that they know. But just because you know something sincerely or assume something sincerely doesn't help you. So do you recognize you're a sinner? And if you recognize you're a sinner, let me tell you. The only way you can have true peace, not true peace in terms of one another with people. Because sometimes even after knowing God, there can be no true peace between people because one of them is an unbeliever or one of them will not agree with God's word. What I'm asking you is, do you need true peace? Not true peace with one another, but true peace with God. Because if you're a sinner, you are not at peace with God. And if you're not at peace with God, you may lay on bed this night, and this may be your last night. And you will be separated from God forever. Without hope. And without peace. But you can know true peace. And, and the joy of explaining or proclaiming this gospel to you this morning is this. 
that we see the work of the Trinity in the aspect of peace. God the Father knew His people. He sends His Son to die for His people. His Son comes into the world, dies for His people, purchases the ransom, the salvation, reconciles them to God. And the Holy Spirit quickens us, regenerates us, makes us born again. And we are able to come to the Savior through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to leave this message with you this morning. I'm not going to give any altar calls. That's not what we do in this church here. That's a misnomer. If you know Christ, if you want to know Christ, go home. Go into the closet. Go into the, to your rooms and cry out to God for salvation. Cry out to Him for salvation. Tell Him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Tell Him that you've sinned against God and there's no peace with God. Tell Him to come into your lives. And He will do it. When you cry out to Him, He will save you. There's no one that He cannot save. You, can't, you say, I'm a wretched person. I'm a depraved. You don't know me. I'm, I'm terrible. I've done terrible things. There's nothing so bad that you've done that God cannot save you. Cry out to Him for salvation. And He will hear you. He will come into your life. And He will save you. And when He saves you, you become part of the church, the body of Christ. Just like the Gentile and the Jew became one new body, the church. You become part of the church. And by the way, we are all Gentiles here. Maybe one Jew, two Jew here. I'm not sure if anyone among you is a Jew. But if not, we are all Gentiles. And it's an opportunity for us to look back if you're saved and praise God for the work He has done in our lives. That we who are far away, away, separated from the commonwealth of Israel, separated from Christ without hope in this world, we were brought near to Christ through His work on the cross. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the word that is proclaimed today. I pray, Father, that You would take these words and and, and do your work in the lives of people here in this church. Lord, I know there are people who are not saved. I know, Lord. And you bring them here for reason. Because the message of the gospel needs to be preached to them. And Father, I thank you for bringing them here. And I pray, Lord, this message would do its work in the lives of people. That if there are believers here, that they would be encouraged. If there are people who are believers who are sensitive, too sensitive, that you would, you would help them, Lord, understand this message. But if there are unbelievers here in this church, people who do not know Christ, that you will make them miserable, Lord. That they will go home and they will cry out to you, even as they drive back home, that they will cry out to you for salvation. Because it is only through Christ and Christ alone, on the cross, dying on the cross for our sins, that we have salvation. And Father, we thank you for the gospel that has been proclaimed to us. Open our hearts and our minds to receive it. And may we bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.